With more than 500 programs a year, there is never a dull moment at the Commonwealth Club. If you're a fan of this podcast and you like hearing new and provocative discussions with the most interesting people in the world, consider showing your support by joining the Commonwealth Club and ensuring that the conversations never end. Visit commonwealthclub.org slash special to get special rates on membership. Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hi, good to see you all. (laughs) It's been a while. It's lovely to see your faces. So um, thank you, Adam, for that introduction. But it is now my pleasure to introduce Dr. Adam Ghazali. Adam Ghazali, MD, PhD, is the David Dolby Distinguished Professor Professor of Neurology, Physiology, and Psychiatry at the UCSF and founder and executive director of Neuroscape at UCSF. Dr. Ghazali is co-founder and chief science advisor to Achille Interactive, Zensync, and Jazz Venture Partners. He has been a scientific advisor for over a dozen companies, filed multiple patents, notably his invention of the first video game cleared by the FDA, authored over 150 scientific articles, and delivered over 675 invited presentations around the world. He wrote and hosted the nationally televised PBS special, The Distracted Mind, with Dr. Adam Ghazali, and co-founded, co-authored the 2016 MIT Press book, The Distracted Mind, Ancient Brains in a High-Tech World. Winner of the 2017 Prose Award. He is the recipient of the 2015 Science Educator Award and the 2020 Global Gaming Citizen Honor. Welcome, Dr. Ghazali. Thank you, everyone, for being here. This is quite surreal for me right now, I have to say. It's been a year and a half since I've stood on a stage and looked at people's faces as opposed to staring at myself uh, on, on Zoom. So it's quite nice. Thanks for being here, being the audience, and thanks for those of you that are online. Uh, it feels great. It really does. So hopefully this is the um, trend that we're heading in. So I, um, I have a really fun talk. It's a new talk uh, that I'm sharing with you, a lot of new content. Uh, so we'll get through all of this together. And I promise you there are very uh, positive notes in this talk. But I'm not going to start with those, uh, unfortunately. I want to just start by leveling us with some of the negative. And that is that I feel our species, and I believe this for a while and written about it, is in the midst of a crisis. And not just the external crisis that we're all aware of in the planet we're living on, but an internal one, a crisis of mind, or what I call a cognition crisis. So when it comes to both understanding and also enhancing our cognition, we're tragically lacking. And I want to be here uh, clear that I'm defining cognition very broadly here our attention, perception, memory, our creativity and imagination, decision-making and reasoning, stress and emotional regulation, empathy, compassion, and wisdom. And we're paying a great price for this. Over half a billion people on this planet are suffering debilitating effects of impaired cognition. 
And the burden is increasing, notably dementia and memory uh, impairment in our seniors, and anxiety, depression, suicide, um, and attention deficits in our youth. And what's now clear is that all of this has been aggravated by the COVID pandemic. But this crisis actually extends beyond the clinical and touches all of us. I would say that limitations in long-term thinking and critical decision-making and empathic concern are clear to see just by reading the daily news. And so when we think about uh, this problem, how can we frame it? I would say that it deserves to be positioned as a grand challenge on par with other pressing global priorities. Because if we can't focus our attention in a sustained manner and make creative, wise, and future-oriented decisions that prioritize others over ourselves, we'll never address complex, time-delayed crises like climate change, no matter how much information we acquire. So it's critical and urgent that we enhance our cognition. The solution that I want to share with you today that we're going to dive into is that I think that this can be accomplished by evolving a fundamental aspect of the human condition, and that is experience. For thousands of years, we humans have been creating and ritualizing experiences to enrich the quality of our lives. So art, music, dance, sports, games, all of these designed and striving to entertain and connect actually has unleashed the power of experience to enhance our minds in countless ways. We've also intentionally designed experiences to support our mental health. Notably, central tenet of the ancient and widespread practices of meditation is release of suffering from unhealthy states, grief, stress, fear, craving, and clinging. Despite a long and rich history of experience as a solution to the cognition crisis and to improving our cognitive abilities, today the dominant paradigm is that there is a magic pill out there that will cure our ailing minds. We just have to find it, but we will find it. I want to back up and, and, and understand how this has happened, how experience has become sort of marginalized as a tool while we have this magic brain pill that I think about. And if we look back 100 years ago, a little over 100 years ago, there were two dominant views that neuroscientists had at the time that turned out to largely be false. The first is that neural communication was largely or completely electrical, and the other was that after critical stages of development, the brain was fixed, and if there was any changes, it was only one of decay. But seminal discoveries pretty much around 100 years ago gave life to two new fields, neurochemistry and neuroplasticity. Neurochemistry showed us that the main signaling between neurons were chemicals, and neuroplasticity, that our brains were capable of adapting and evolving and changing itself throughout our lifespan. And this occurs at every level. It's chemistry, it's structure, it's function. We know how powerful experience-driven neuroplasticity is, so that even witnessing one single tragic event could detrimentally impact the functioning of your brain for the rest of your life. We call this post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD. PTSD. 
Now, over that last 70 years, both of these fields have become dominant in neuroscience, and their mechanisms are deeply intertwined. Despite the equivalent credibility of neurochemistry and neuroplasticity in these fields, their translation into medicine for the mind has been very polarized, such that neurochemistry delivered as molecular medicine and the pill became mainstream. But neuroplasticity delivered as, a, as what I describe experiential medicine and the session became marginalized as alternative. So let's try to understand why that is right now, because if we ever want to try to change that, it's helpful to really look under the hood and analyze what has occurred to lead to this split, even though the scientific basis of both of these are equivalently strong. When you think about molecular medicine, it has some very powerful assets going for it. So the first is that it really rode on the success of pills and molecular medicine in other fields of medicine, notably infectious disease. So if you could take a pill to fix and, you know, and help with an infection, why couldn't you take one just to cure your depression? And thus, a pill for the mind sort of fits the model of what we think medicine should be like. It's also so convenient. If you could just take your medicine in a second a day, um, right after you brush your teeth, it appeals to the lazier side of our nature. And pills and molecular medicine can be easily formulated, distributed, and blinded, making them very accessible, reproducible, and testable in randomized controlled trials. These are really, really powerful assets and really underlies the multi-billion dollar global industry of the pharmaceutical uh, market that really has, has sort of capitalized on these strengths. Interestingly enough, these same assets are the weakness of experiential medicine delivered via the session. So it does not fit the model of dosing it or cutting it. It's far from convenient. It takes work and time. And because most of these experiential medicines or up until recently are delivered by a human expert, there's a lot of limitations on the accessibility, the reproducibility of it, and also its testability. And so this is where we stand and have standed up until around a decade ago. When what happened is noticeable challenges occurred in the paradigm. The first is that they're poorly targeted. So for 70 years, we've been trying to develop molecules that target the neural network in the brain, which is the underlying computational unit of how the brain functions, and we have failed. And therefore, what we have to do is increase our doses to very high levels to get the effects we want, and then we get pretty much just as many side effects as we do effects. Because of the challenge in finding targeted solutions, as well as the side effects, it drives up the cost of R&D and leads to the very high prices and expenses of molecular medicine. It has also proven very difficult to personalize it, to monitor it remotely, and to adjust it out in the world. And these challenges, we've been trying to flip these cards for the last 70 years trying to get there, and we failed. So now we're at the point where most or many of the major pharmaceutical companies have withdrawn their resources from research and development in this domain. Not because we have the solution, just because of these challenges. And so I propose that we need to have all of these 
assets in our medicine. And this is what we do not have right now. And so what I want to propose is that an ancient reformulation, a modern reformulation of the ancient approaches of experience can be applied to this. So I'll call this technology-enabled experiential medicine. So I want to pause here, right? Because technology has challenged us in many fundamental ways. Distraction and depression, I'm talking about information technology, but also misinformation and privacy. On the distraction side of it, I wrote an entire book on this topic called The Distracted Mind, Ancient Brains in a High-Tech World. So there's some challenges with technology as a solution here, but it doesn't mean that we can't reimagine how technology can play a role in this regard. I would say we're actually at a pivot point in terms of modern technology being reapplied in such a manner. And so it's important to think about how our technologies can be used to elevate us as humans and not diminish us. There's a particular type of technology that I want to talk about now that can be created to build experiences. And that is what I describe as the closed loop experience. Simply put, a closed-loop experience is one in which the stimuli and the challenges that you're receiving is personalized to you based upon your state in the moment. I'm going to break that down so it's really clear because it's probably one of the most important points that I want to make today. Let's show this in a model. So here you are, your brain, having a closed-loop experience that's being delivered by a technology, in this case on a tablet. What's happening is while you're playing this game and having this experience, aspects of your state, your stress, your emotions, your performance are being collected. And this could be your facial expression, your brain activity, your physiological recording. And this could be done with devices that you're either wearing or on or are sitting on your uh, peripheral devices. And what this is doing is being fed into a processor and then fed back to you essentially in real time to update the environment based upon your data. The sensations, what you're seeing and hearing, the challenges that you're receiving and your rewards. This is the closed loop experience. And it creates a very personalized target experience for you that changes over time. And we can take this very complex data loop that exists and bring in machine learning technology, machine learning, so that we can really drive the level of personalization. I would say that there's no better use that I can imagine for AI than this, HI, advancing human intelligence. So I want to be clear here, to just break it down, that it is the stimulation and the mechanics of the interaction that activate brain networks selectively. This is something that we have never accomplished ever before with a molecule. And then it is the adaptive aspects of the closed loop that put pressure on those neural systems to change, harnessing your inherent brain plasticity to optimize your function over time. So this is the basis of what we have been working on, a closed-loop experience to improve function. I would propose that this type of experience can have all of these assets when delivered as medicine. So we would have accessible, convenient, and inexpensive mobile devices delivering reproducible, targeted, and personalized treatments that are easily testable, adjustable, and monitorable. So there is a lot there. We don't have time to break down all of these elements, but this is the goal, and this is what I think we can accomplish with this type of experiential medicine. Now, 
these as a conceptual uh, basis is one thing, but if we really want to change expectations, how people think of medicine is not a pill, but an experience, we really have to have real-world examples. And so expectations require us building, developing these tools, and then testing them with rigorous scientific methodology. And that's what I want to talk to you about now. So I'm going to take us out of the abstract domain and give you some real examples from my last 13 years of building closed-loop experiences with technology to show that we can improve cognition in a meaningful and sustainable way. So I'm going to slide back now. It began in 2008. So years are going by at my lab at the University of California. And I think it was a little disorienting to my colleagues at the time when I, had, at that point, had been in neuroscience for 20 years. And I reached out to friends of mine at LucasArts, and we built a video game that I designed and they helped develop. We call that game NeuroRacer. And the game was designed based upon our work in our cognitive neuroscience laboratory. And it was meant to improve attention. And our first target were seniors, so healthy individuals over 60 years old. How NeuroRacer works is that you play this game and you have two simultaneous challenges, which is very hard for your brain to do, that are rewarded only when you get better at both of them. And while you're doing that, we're distracting you. And so the idea is it's a very high-level interference resolution um, task for your brain to uh, engage in, like uh, you know, the most challenging uh, personal trainer you could ever find, uh, pushing, putting pressure on these brain systems. Why a game? I felt strongly from the very beginning that games are a special type of experience, and the enjoyment and immersiveness that you can have with play would lead to deep engagement in the moment, which is necessary to harness the brain's plasticity, and then also better compliance with this treatment over time. And so we built this game. It took us several years. We did three years of research, and we published it in 2013 in this journal, Nature. Um, the cover of the journal, really exciting moment for us after five years of work on this. And what we showed is that the older adults in this study not only got better at the game, but we also improved their sustained attention and their memory on a different set of tasks and against control groups. And I won't break down every element of this paper, but we also showed that some of these benefits lasted six months later, and we recently published a paper even showing benefits six years later, which is sort of mind-boggling since this was only a month of gameplay. We also recorded neural activity during gameplay to understand the mechanisms of what was changing in the brain, showing that it was really relying on... Uh, changes in communication between the prefrontal cortex, the most evolved part of our brain, and the rest of the brain, strengthening those and even making those networks look like 20-year-olds. And so that is uh, the story behind NeuroRacer. Now, this led to my laboratory to evolve into a center called Neuroscape. And you could see some pictures of the laboratories here. We've really designed very unique types of labs to integrate interactive media and neuroscience methodology. You could see the control room in some of our labs right here. And over the years, uh, you know, over the last seven years now, we've built multiple closed-loop video games to advance this concept of experiential medicine. So what we do here is we integrate the principles of the closed loop, adaptive challenges and rewards, with real-world experiential treatments, rhythm, music, dance, meditation, mindfulness, physical fitness, and then deliver them with fun and engaging game mechanics. And so that's what we've been building. You could see some pictures of those here. It takes us on average two years to build each one of our games. And they all collect different types of data to drive the closed loop. 
and are presented on all different devices. You could see from virtual reality to large scale uh, screen presentations and motion capture. After we finish developing these games, we do deep dive, double blind, randomized controlled trial research, basically looking at every possible metric that can change by this type of, of treatment. And this is what our uh, study designs often look like. I just want to talk about one particular study is Metatrain. This is a, a video game that we developed with the uh, help of a friend of ours, Jack Kornfield, uh, an expert in the field. And Metatrain takes those principles of closed loop but couples it with uh, concentrative meditation and focus on breath. And what we've now shown here in a whole series of papers is that even six weeks of engagement in Metatrain leads to improvement in sustained attention in 20-year-olds in adolescents that have adverse life effects. This was a really fascinating study that we did in India with foster care children, and now in seniors. We've taken this further, and just recently, this is unpublished data that I'm sharing with you, showed that it doesn't just improve attention, but also improves, improves stress reactivity. So exciting to see a very, very different type of game and interaction than what we had in NeuroRacer. This is a game that you play with your eyes closed, and it's all internal. So it could really change how you think about games when you realize how, how varied the type of interactivity can be. Just to mention, we finished three other randomized controlled trials in older adults with our game's body brain trainer, which integrates physical and cognitive challenges. So this is a motion capture game, and we integrate these challenges with multiple closed loops so that you're challenging both your body and your mind at the same time. Rhythmicity is a game that challenges you rhythmically um, to, based on your accuracy and your consistency of your rhythmic abilities because we believe one of the fundamental principles of brain function is rhythm and it will lead to multiple improvements um, in cognition. We're actually publishing a paper showing that rhythm improves working memory in older adults. And then Labyrinth is a virtual reality game where you navigate 3D environments and the neighborhoods that that you're searching for your clues get increasingly difficult as you get better at navigating. So again, a closed loop game. We just published a paper in older adults showing an improvement in their memory abilities outside of navigation. And there's really almost no examples of that um, with any other intervention. So we're really excited about what we just found with Labyrinth. We use closed loop methodology beyond therapeutics to also build diagnostic tools. So this is a diagnostic that we've built called Adaptive Cognitive Evaluation, or ACE. We use this in lots of ways, but I want to show you a unique one. We've done a study with 1,200 middle school children to look at the relationship between cognitive abilities and school performance and showed that sustained attention really relates very directly to things like reading and math performance. Now, that might seem obvious to you, but there's a massive disconnect between cognition and the education performance metrics that we use, and we're trying to change that so that we can use these tools to have actionable measures of the different aspects of cognition that we need to improve. So you can imagine using a tool like this and then going home um, as a child at the end of the day and playing a video game that targets those weaknesses so that you can reach your maximal uh, potential. 
We also develop lots of technologies to record brain activity and other aspects of physiology in real time. This is one of our technologies called the glass brain. It's actually my brain um, that is showing real-time activity while I'm playing one of our games. It's a combination of MRI and EEG. And we've advanced this over the last several years for a program that we call multimodal biosensing. And what this does is not just collect brain activity, but also looks at other physiological measures from your periphery, so your heart rate your respiration, how your skin conductivity changes, um, eye movements, and all of this data is now being integrated. Our goal is to be able to capture the state of a person in real time so that we can peer inside what's frequently the black box and use that data actionably to drive closed-loop systems. So this is the direction that we're heading in. Another program that uh, we're engaged in is using the multimodal biosensing to drive the um, interactivity that you have on a closed-loop video game. So it's not just driven by performance. We had our first publication recently showing that neural data fed into the game can increase uh, the, the outcomes that we're seeing. We also have a program using non-invasive brain stimulation. This will sound a little science fiction-y to some of you, where we could stimulate the brain electrically during gameplay and show that we can accelerate learning. We have several papers in this over the last couple of years. And our goal now is to use real-time data so that the brain stimulation, the parameters of it, is personalized to your brain and how it's changing over time. So now let's move to the real world from the laboratory. Um, over the last decade, my goal has been not just to do research and build the technology in the ivory tower of academics, but to get it out into the world and realizing that you can't do that in a university alone. This is where you navigate that complex relationship between academics and industry. And so I co-founded a company called Achille um, uh, pretty much a decade ago. And what we've done is take the very same mechanics and interactivity of Neuroracer and create a much better game, one with higher levels of art, story, music, reward cycles, usability, delivered on an iPad, um, so much more accessible. Uh, so this game is now has gone through um, many clinical trials. I'm not even an author on most of these. These are being done in many other universities on all of these clinical conditions that you see. Perhaps most excitingly is the work that's been done on ADHD. This was led by a uh, researcher, Scott Collins, out of Duke, showing that the same type of effects that we were seeing on our seniors with Neuroracer, we see on children with ADHD using this game, which is called Endeavor RX. So an improvement in their sustained attention abilities and also real-world functional changes have now been seen in several studies. And so the, all of these publications have occurred since that original Nature paper showing that in multiple populations we're finding these same effects. They're not just limited to seniors, which is you know, the most exciting part uh, of this, is that you could work on a cognitive system like attention and then see benefits across the multiple populations that have attention challenges. I'm proud to announce that as of last year, we now have moved this technology to the FDA and have the first clear digital treatment for children. This is a treatment for ADHD and the first ever FDA cleared video game. So this is the first time I get to say this on a stage, so it's very exciting. 
I was looking at some of my old talks here at the Commonwealth Club since we've been doing this for 12 years, and I've seen so many talks from like, one day we may have this first ever FDA-approved video game. So it's really gratifying. Uh, that was a little silver lining during COVID for us, um, is to get this approval. And now we have the very real challenge of getting this prescribable video game, right, written by a prescription from a doctor into patients' hands. And that has started already, and it's going really well. So very exciting. Outside of the intense interactivity that we have in our video games, I'm also very interested in passive experiences. Not all experiences have to be active. And the one that's most interesting to me is nature. Now, not everyone has access to nature. I'm a big fan of time in real nature. And there's some really exciting data showing that nature can have benefits on stress and mood and even restoration from cognitive fatigue. I started asking the question, how might we use digital technologies to deliver nature experiences, even potentially in a closed loop, and realized that despite virtual reality being a head-mounted display, maybe headphone, we really weren't delivering an immersive enough experience because we weren't achieving the highest level of what's known as sensory synchronization. So sensory, sensory synchronization is when you receive simultaneous stimulation across all of your senses. And in neuroscience, um, the process that this underlies is called multisensory integration. And it leads to this phenomenon known as the unity effect that lets you see full constructs of places and, and people and creates essentially the construct of reality. We didn't really have a technology to do that, which I thought would be critical for a nature experience to have a positive benefit outside of real-world nature. And so I co-founded another company called SenseSync to build this device, which we call a sensory immersion vessel. So you could think of this as almost the opposite of a sensory deprivation tank. I, I really don't like calling it a pod. I think of it as a vessel. It's a vehicle for your mind. And up until COVID, uh, this was actually sitting at a Four Seasons in Hawaii, serving as a spa treatment, a relaxation and restoration treatment, which was our first use of this sort of as a test case. Uh, so to break down what is going on inside this device, it's stimulation across what you see, hear, smell, and feel, and you can see some of those details, coupled with real-time physiology that creates a very powerful closed-loop nature experience. Um, so this is, a, a, you know, sort of the first of its kind, trying to advance this idea of full sensory immersion driven by physiology, so another type of closed-loop experience. I think that by coupling this type of hardware with closed-loop video games, we could wind up with the real ultimate delivery system of experiential medicine. But this is work that still needs to be done. I also think this is a good point to talk about molecular medicine and what it might mean to integrate it with these other type of experiential systems. I hypothesize that by combining them, we could lower the doses of our molecules such that we minimize side effects and maybe wind up with better benefits than we could with either of these together. So this is an area of future research. And thinking about what molecule we do, what we use in this type of approach, I became very interested in a particular type of molecule that underlies psychedelic compounds. And I think that these would be an ideal one to couple 
with these type of tools, these technology tools that we've been talking about. And why is that? Well, if you've been following the news, um, over the last decade, we have a reemergence of research on psychedelics showing benefits across numerous conditions, notably PTSD, depression, and addiction. But when you read these papers and talk to the practitioners, what we find is that it's not just drug leads to effect, it's that drug leads to experience leads to effect. And the nature of the experience occurs before, during, and after the psychedelic treatment, what's known in the field as set, setting, and integration. And it was the realization of the role of experience in these treatments that led me to appreciate that psychedelic compounds, when delivered for therapeutic purposes, are really experiential medicine also. They may be molecularly initiated, but the effects that we're seeing are driven through the experience itself, creating a fascinating question of how you might merge these together. And so, during COVID, we announced the, a new division at Neuroscape, a psychedelic division that will be led by Robin Card Harris, who's a, a world leader in the psychedelic uh, field. He actually just arrived here in San Francisco last week. And we want to address some really interesting and unexplored areas. The first is recording of state in real time during a psychedelic treatment using multimodal biosensing. So you might not know the exact content of someone's thoughts, but to be able to see their level of stress, the emotional valence, their level of arousal and attention is all possible with the tools that we've been developing for many years. We can also start changing the environment, uh, which is something that we've essentially been doing, minus the psychedelics, also for the last decade. Not just in terms of what you hear, which is how most clinical studies with psychedelics are performed today. You usually listen to music with eyes closed. But what is the role of what you see, the visual system? How about smell and tactile information, touch? Really unexplored in the research domain. And once we put these together, and we could see inside the black box someone's experience and see how these different stimuli can change the peak experience and lead to better outcomes, we create the first ever closed-loop psychedelic treatments. And so this is something that we're very excited about in bringing this field and coupling it with a lot of the work we've been doing with technology-enabled experiential medicine. And so just imagine the potential of integrating these tools to address the cognition crisis. I think that there is a, a, lot of, a lot of work to be done, but also a lot of reason to be optimistic. And I would just say that I think that we can do better. I truly do. And that we need to do better. And I'd like to thank you for your attention. That was wonderful. Thank you, Adam. That was a lot of information, wasn't it? So I, well, I left notes. us with a lot of time, right? So. No, you, we, we did good. good. Perfect. That um, was the goal. I have questions from the audience, and they will continue to come in and be fed to me if they come in from the people listening at, at home. But starting from the end, um, with the, um, the microdosing of the psychedelics, doesn't it have something to do with your Sherpa? What do you call the people who are there with you in, in, in the, the rooms? Shamans. Sh shamans or a guide yes, to help guides. you. Does that person and that person's experience affect people 
and their journey while they are on yeah. psychedelics. Is that a training situation? Yeah. Okay. So there's a lot there. I'll unpack it. So okay. there is, there's lots of different doses that psychedelics could be delivered. Um, the, the whopper dose, the major psychedelic dose that gives, you know, very strong cognitive and, you know, perceptual effects is what's largely studied in the clinical trials. Mm -hmm. And there the experience is not subtle. And there's a whole uh, emerging scientific literature on what's occurring in the brain to lead to positive benefits besides just entertainment value. And so this changes in plasticity as well as a shift in perception that allows many people to break through on, uh, on some areas of stickiness and beyond stickiness, like, you know, really being pathologically impaired by things like depression and, and post-traumatic stress disorder. And so we're working um, all over the world doing functional brain imaging to understand what are those neural mechanisms that lead to the positive benefits so that we can optimize. So that's the major dose. Now you mentioned microdosing. Yeah. There's a lot of interest in taking doses that are subperceptual. So that's how we tend to define microdoses. There's also mini doses, which are you know somewhere in between. The microdose is still somewhat controversial in terms of its benefits. It's it, there's a lot of work to be done. It's an area of interest to ours of ours, and I'm especially interested in maybe coupling microdosing that are not giving perceptual effects, but maybe have positive effects on neuroplasticity with the type of video game treatments that we're working on. So that's an area that we're looking to explore. Uh, so it depends on the dose. Now, most of uh, the shaman, shamanistic um, uh, practices and in indigenous cultures that have been done for thousands of years using psychedelics are with much higher doses than microdoses. Mm -hmm. And there it is felt that the role of the shaman, and not just as an individual, but in terms of the environment, once again, the set and setting, what music is being played, what sense are delivered, is dance involved, other aspects of ritual, that these ingredients are critical for the positive outcomes. And so in, in the world, in, in practice, manipulation, not manipulation, but guiding of a person by changing the environment is, is part of, you know, it's standard. Mm -hmm. It's exploration in research and prospectively designed studies to understand that is almost non-existent. Mm -hmm. And so that's the opportunity that we see at Neuroscape is to really look under the hood and understand how these different um, elements of set and setting might be used to optimize the outcome. And there's just, you know, a lifetime of work to do there, but that's, that's one of our main goals. Well, I, I read something not long ago saying that it can, um, the psychedelics can help people with depression for months afterwards. So I, I think what I was meaning to ask rather than Sherpa or shaman was just, is this another uh, aspect of, of, of the medical profession that we are going to have people who aren't indigenous people, not actually shamans, just people who are going to be trained in yes. guiding people th through this experience? Yeah. So that, that's a great question. So how most of uh, psychedelics are now being delivered 
in the research trials. Now, I want to make clear that these research trials are being done at all levels, including what's known as the phase three trial, which are studies that are designed to get FDA approval of a medical device or a drug, sort of similar to what we did with our video game. That's happening right now. Notably, um, MDMA, which is co commonly known as ecstasy, uh, for the treatment of PTSD. A paper was just published. Actually, the lead author in that Nature Medicine paper is uh, Jenny Mitchell at Neuroscape at, at, at our center. And then Robin Card Harris just had a paper um, with uh, psilocybin, which is the active ingredient uh, for mushrooms, uh, that uh, is being uh, tested at phase two now, advancing to phase three for the treatment of major depressive disorder. So the goal is that those will become medicine. Now, to answer you, I just wanted to, I didn't talk about that level of detail. I just wanted to get that out there. Now, th these are not the type of medicines that you give someone and say, go home and, you know, good luck with that. Tell me how you're doing in a month. They are always given in the setting of a therapist uh, that are that are well-trained um, on how to, you know, guide someone, support someone um, during one of these pretty profound treatments. So similar to what a shaman does in some ways, uh, it's, it's part of every clinical trial. So, yes, there's going to be a, and there are already, like MAPS, the organization that has been advancing the MDMA research that I described, has full training programs on how to hmm. um, help someone develop the skills to serve as a guide in these research trials. Now, most of all of this, except for ketamine, which is now available as an FDA-approved treatment for depression, um, is in the research phase. But everyone's looking at a not-distant future where these compounds will be coupled with therapy in some way and delivered as treatments, maybe as soon as the next couple of years. Okay. And is it, this is probably uh, a state's issue, but it's legal in some states and not legal in others? And So it's just starting, right? We have okay. decriminalization in right. Oakland, but Oregon is passing yeah. a, a legalization of psilocybin. Um, that's not only clinical, it could also be for well-being outcomes. And that's just happening now and still putting together how that is going to um, be delivered in a safe and effective way. But, yeah, it's really exciting. I mean, early days. Early days. Okay. Now, shifting uh, back a little bit in your presentation to ADHD and your work with children and assisting them, um, but, you know, there's a lot of adults who have ADHD as well, many. Yes. yes. <laughs> and I'm just wondering how this might potentially help adults. Yeah, so we are already doing those studies. They're, they're, they're looking good. We've done a lot of work in adults. And, you know, NeuroRacer was done on seniors and improved attention abilities. Mm -hmm. How it works with the FDA is that you, these phase three trials are pre-submitted. It takes years. It's, it's a very, very in-depth process. It takes years to do the study and then years to work through the FDA review process. All that happened for this uh, treatment. And the study, that, that particular study was on children 8 to 12 years old, and that is what our approval's for. Oh. So their approvals are very narrow, um, maybe unfairly so, maybe fairly so. There's a lot of debate about that, especially when you have such a low side effect treatment like this. Yeah. In either case, 
the, the reality is that we need to expand the indication by doing additional studies in other populations and showing benefits, and that's being done right now. So we hope to expand that treatment to all age ranges with ADHD, mm -hmm. and then all the other clinical indications that we're already seeing benefits in, um, like depression, we have data for multiple sclerosis, early dementia, so all that work is being done. And I think you touched on this a little bit just but if you would uh, bring it, uh, you know, talk about it a little bit more, and that is adults and children's attention spans, you know, which yeah. are practically nil at, at this point. I heard somebody say not long ago, we have less than a, of an attention span than a goldfish at this particular juncture in time. And I read something, it was a Yale professor, I think, that said his attention span makes it, he's an English professor, and he's having a hard time reading some of these slow you know, uh, books that he loves because his attention span has been so lacking. So what do we do about that? Yeah. So, you know, this is one of the main topics that I, I really spent years working on mm -hmm. before uh, a lot of the closed loop uh, method, you know, technology work that we're doing now as a solution was really analyzing brain activity in people from, you know, all different age ranges and showing how impaired our tension abilities are. Yeah. Uh, and I believe there's a, a fair case that we, we make in a book, my, uh, uh, Larry Rose and my co-author and I, that technology has really aggravated um, this problem, uh, especially in children. Uh, so we need approaches to help improve attention. And that's really what started this whole journey for me um, into experiential medicine and closed-loop technologies because we don't have a good set of molecular tools to do it, right? Adderall as a treatment and stimulants, especially in children, I think are really problematic from lots of points of view. And they come with lots of side effects. A lot of people, they don't have benefits and they do help some people. So I'm not dismissing it. I think my message here is that we just need to expand the tools that we have. Mm -hmm. So I would hope that approaches like our Meditrain meditation approach, mm -hmm. our physical fitness, all the papers that we'll have coming out over the next couple of years are all tools that can improve attention. And also, this is a good point, time for me to make clear that I don't only believe that technology-enabled solutions are the, are the way to go. I think that for some people, they're going to be really appropriate. They're very accessible. Uh, you know, there are places in the world where it's hard to get doctors or teachers in there, but people walking around with mobile phones, you know, connected to the Internet. So I think it's a really powerful use of technology to do good. But being in the real world and in nature and engaging with other people and um, having physical fitness is critical. So it's not meant to be a replacement. Most of our treatments are just 30 minutes a day or less. So they're, they're meant to be time-limited ways of optimizing performance. Okay. Um, someone asked if there was a... What are the risks of... Um, I'm sorry, I have a, sometimes a hard time reading people's handwriting. What are the risks of uh, data collected in closed loops? Um, there's a word I can't read, sorry. What are the, about the risks of data collected in closed loop experiences? Yeah. Yeah, that's a good question. You know, a lot of people, and it's a longer discussion about why take a video game through the FDA pathway and not, not just put it out there, and lots of reasons for, for that. But one of them is that it's not necessarily a given that there couldn't be negative side effects or negative implications of a game like this. And 
I would say it would be irresponsible to say on one hand that you could have such positive benefits that it would be serve as a medicine to not think that it could have negative consequences. That's not really the way things work. So we look very carefully for negative side effects and and don't see them for the most part, but it doesn't mean they're not there and we're going to keep looking. So one of the reasons of going through the FDA pathway is to treat, treat it seriously like it deserves to be and where you're not just looking for efficacy but looking for side effects, and we'll continue to monitor those over time. And so, you know, one of the negative implications are that the closed-loop system and plasticity doesn't have a morality. There's no good or bad. It's going to change in the direction that you push it. And hopefully we're pushing it in the right direction, but these systems could be designed to decrease abilities and performance just as easily as benefit them. So, you know, I, I think it's, it, it is responsible that any new technology really be evaluated ethically for its negative consequences. And I think that we're, we're doing okay with this right now, but we're very mindful of the potential negative impacts it could have on the brain as well. Okay. This is a question from someone you know. He says from a Mickey McManus, an old mm-hmm. author. He says it's a geeky, quirky question. Does the glass frame for the sensing fuse, I can't read this word, a parametric model or a layered model? I don't know what that means, but you can explain it. Yeah, so <laughs> right now we're in a phase of exploration of our multimodal systems where we are exploring all the different potential um, avenues of integrating these signals. So the challenge is that each of these uh, tools have different time signatures, different sampling rates. Uh, And what we want to do is integrate them in real time to give a composite measure that has meaningful um, information. And so we're looking at at both of those models uh, to determine which is most uh, successful at, at really giving us interpretable state information. Okay. Um, Someone asks a great question. How can clinicians begin to prescribe and enable FDA-approved gaming treatments today? Yeah, so um, Achilles game is available um, for children with ADHD. It's prescribable by a doctor. You could go onto the website. For that age group. For that age group. I mean, doctors do prescribe out of indication, but our goal is to just expand the indication. But uh, going on uh, online as a physician, uh, you'll find all the information to prescribe that to, to children with ADHD. Okay. Do you think that the play attention can be a benefit for executive function? That those yeah. what? Do you think that play attention, play attention can be a benefit for executive function? Play attention. Play att- how long you play, how long you, I'm guessing, is that someone in the room here that asked that question? No, someone online. So I guess we don't know what that question actually means. Yeah, I can okay. make it up. But That's I'll all right. Well, we, we okay. Um, someone wants to know how their child can potentially be involved with clinical trials. Yeah, so uh, clinicaltrials.gov has all the studies going on around the world. Um, you know, the limitation of a lot of trials 
are that they are done near medical centers. And so if you happen to live in San Francisco, we have lots of great centers here, or Baltimore, Johns Hopkins. But there's lots of people that don't live near medical centers. They'll live five hours away. And that is a, a limitation and, uh, of the studies in terms of diversity and also people that want to participate. We are, over the last four years, we've been developing a system, a new technology at Neuroscape called Nexus, and its goal is to be able to do large-scale, fully remote, randomized control trials, which are not really done currently. And the goal is that someone living anywhere, and hopefully anywhere in the world, can participate in, in a trial. This is really difficult to do with molecular treatments and if there's side effect risks, but with a video game that can be downloaded to your own device, it's possible. And we're just about ready to launch Nexus now. It's like the most COVID-appropriate technology. Yeah. We started it before COVID. I wish it was done last year. Uh, but this will allow us to do research even if our labs are closed, which has occurred. They're open now, but they're moving slowly, as you can imagine. And if you go on Neuroscape, our website, and sign up for our mailing list, we'll announce our trials there. So anyone could be in our studies very soon. Hopefully next year we'll start enrolling on multiple trials where whether or not you live in San Francisco, you could participate. Awesome. Now, this, this question came in early, and I think you answered it since then. He, uh, he or she wants to know what company makes these games, and that's Akili, correct? Mm-hmm. Okay. Also, somebody wants just curious as to uh, why does it take two years to make a game? Well, a games, even entertainment games, take a long time more more than two years often. So games are are hard to do well. Um, you know, it's really easy to make a bad game, but making a great game is really difficult. And the bias, the bar is really high for good games right now, especially <laughs> for kids. But our, our games um, are not really necessarily. Um, driven to you know the highest entertainment level though we do want them fun and engaging but the the closed loop systems that we use are are quite complicated um, especially when you start having multiple closed loops so when you're using different data streams to update different aspects of reward and challenge they often interact with each other in very unpredictable ways it's sort of hard to describe all this but uh, essentially, what why it takes so long is that we build and then we test, and then we update and then we we test again. And so, uh, some of it you can do f- by planning, and a lot of it you have to do just by research and development, and it just takes a long time. Okay. Um, okay, I'm going to do my best with this. Will you use autobiographical information from participants during treatments, or is that a scalability challenge? Do you foresee including interception as well? I don't know if that says interception as well, so maybe we'll skip that part of the question. Yeah, so in the first part, Mm -hmm. yes. So remember, the goal here is personalized and precisely targeted treatments. That's what we don't have right now. And that's what I think, you know, hopefully we're convincing the world that technology-enabled experiential treatments give us the value, give, give us that value. Now, there's lots of different ways of personalizing. One way is through the closed-loop system. Another is to gather a lot of information about a person that we just met mm-hmm. so that we can start the treatment in a much more optimal way for them. And so... The the future that we envision will involve someone having a very deep dive assessment that will involve 
all sorts of aspects of their physiology, their function, genetics, other aspects of the autobiographical past mm -hmm. that will then be used to give them the right set of games and starting conditions so that they're starting close to where they need. And then, of course, the games will adapt and adjust as they go along. Um, and a lot of this will involve predictive modeling, which is a big part of our research now. So it's, it's the future, but it is a future that we're working towards, is to have better predictive ability of what type of treatment is appropriate for you to start on. Right now, we don't do that very much, right? We're like, okay, we're going to start with this one, see how you do. If it doesn't work, we'll switch over. We think we could do a lot better than that. Okay. Uh, experiential medicine are... How we eat, diet, and exercise, non-brain examples of experiential medicine for the body, excluding the brain and cognition. Hmm. I, I, I think I can answer that. Okay. So, for, first of all, I'll answer it in a couple ways. Um, experiential medicine has been around a long time. That's why I, I, frame, I call this arc a new era of experiential medicine, right? And even talking about the ancient practices of meditation and mindfulness. Mm -hmm. And in the cardiac field, uh, cardiac health, uh, although you might get um, a beta blocker and a statin, you're often going to get a recommendation of physical fitness and other nutritional changes and lifestyle, what's often called lifestyle treatments. Mm -hmm. um, those are experiences. And so experiential medicine exists beyond the brain, but for other aspects of the body. But I don't like putting the body here and the brain here, right? They're, they're interactive systems. And many of the things that are good for your body, like physical fitness, are good for your brain. Your brain is part of your body. Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't want to separate them, but I... I would say, yes, there's experiential medicine uh, that exists and can also be delivered technologically uh, for repair or medical treatments for aspects of your body that are not your brain. Okay. Um, I was just going to ask something else, but I'll read this one because it just went out of my head quickly there. What do you perceive are your greatest obstacles to make this process a reality to the millions who are suffering um, what else do you need? Well, that, that kind of piggybacks to what I was curious about, too, is that how does this help the average person? How do we get, mm -hmm. to, how do we get to people who live in this country who don't have access to everything that we have access to right here? Yeah, so I think there's lots of ways of answering that question. I'm not sure what it's Yeah, intentions. how do you perceive our I mean, it's really one of, I heard a question there of yeah. scale, right? Yeah. How do you reach scale, right? Yeah. I started this talk by saying a half a billion people around the world are suffering these debilitating effects of impaired cognition, which is true. Mm. Depression, anxiety, dementia, attention deficits. That's what the numbers uh, are made up of. And it's gonna, it's it's hard work, right, to scale at that um, magnitude. But that is another opportunity of technology, right? That you know, this is unlike um, the the pill that has to be delivered in places that's hard to reach. As I said, people have devices already. So software as medicine has that asset in that people are sitting with the device; they can be downloaded effectively. And, you know, there, there will be accessibility challenges and equity challenges, of course. Mm -hmm. And that's something that we spend a lot of time talking about of how to deal with, you know, socioeconomic differences and people that have different access to devices. But the good news is that 
the tech world and the entertainment world and the communication world are doing a lot of the work for us by decreasing the price and, 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 and the distribution. So I think that scale is going to happen uh, through a lot of hard work, but over time. And hopefully, and we're seeing the signs, it's not just Achille and what we're doing at Neuroscoop. There are many, many other academic groups and companies that are working on this in all different ways. It doesn't have to be game. This companies like Paratherapeutics that are delivering cognitive, cognitive behavioral therapy as prescription, uh, digital therapeutics. So there's, uh, you know, it takes a village, right? We need not just a company or two. We need the type of force like the pharmaceutical world has now where you have multi you know, billion dollar uh, industry around the world, I think is going to be required to uh, to really reach scale. Uh, and then, of course, there is the equity issues that we are thinking about. And I think that we can do better than is done right now in the pharmaceutical industry. I think we can do better on affordability. And back to the, the previous question, a couple questions ago about diet and exercise. I heard you say one of our first talks of 12 years ago here that um, you know, the best thing you could do for your, your brain is exercise. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you, you have stressed that before, too, and anybody can do that, mm-hmm. I mean, for the yeah, most part. That, that's another way of answering the question. It's yeah. that, you know, these are a set of tools that we will show through research have very targeted benefits and I think that we can make those benefits available beyond people with clinical conditions. That's yet another way of answering that question. How do we move beyond the medical model to the well-being and the preventative model? All that, I think, is, is possible. Uh, but there's a lot that can be done without technology-enabled experiential medicines. You could have real-world experiential medicine. You could go to a meditation retreat. If you have access, access to that, you could have you know, physical fitness and games and play without technology. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot that you can do um, to have the benefits of these type of approaches mm-hmm. if they're not accessible it's, to you. Yeah. This question um, is, well, it's, two-part question, but can uh, adults be prescribed um, these games? But the second part is um, about uh, uh, TBI, traumatic brain injury, and does your game help restore uh, or gain vision impairment? And on that, I'm going to add a a little question that I have to tag on to that because I have an interest in traumatic brain injury, and that is, um, you know, there have been some studies about, um, you know, different protocols before like like with football players but you know how how do they keep how do they help protect their brains mm-hmm. beforehand if they're still going to play football and then if they are injured it's periodized nutrition or it's periodized um you know magnesium they're using now after a traumatic brain injury but can your games um so so TBI, do they help? And is it a periodized thing, you know, mm-hmm. um, protocol? Right. Uh, we, I, I would say there is a, a, you know, really strong hypothesis that these types of treatments, plasticity-driven, uh, interactive experiences, would have benefits in TBI. It's, it's a great population to study. Mm-hmm. I can't speak specifically about it because we have not done TBI studies. Mm-hmm. I mean, think about how many populations we're talking about. Oh my but there's a lot of groups that are working on TBI, and it's yeah. probably something that we will work at at, at some time. Mm-hmm. Um, and how it would be delivered is still a big question mark. Are they? I, I think that the optimal approach is to deliver, stop, assess if it's still needed, and then reapply. And and my goal is not to create 
another chronic treatment. Mm -hmm. I like thinking about these as more time limited mm -hmm. and that they're driven by data, not that you just play this game for the rest of your life. You should play it when needed and that should be a data-driven decision. Okay. Um, that's all the, they're quick. I have a couple of questions okay. myself. One of them is kind of bizarre. So, you know, bear with me here. Um, you know, they say our, our gut is our second brain, you know, lots of connection to our actual brain. Have you thought or interested in or somebody working on, you know, the brain um, versus the gut connection in real time? I, I think it's a great question. We're, we, it's not in our research scope right now, but the microbiome and its interaction with the brain yeah. and behavior is super interesting. It, really interesting. Okay, well, well, we'll check back on that later. Yeah. And then you mentioned earlier in your talk about telomeres. Yeah. And, and I think when you were talking about that, we were talking about the, the meditation yep. uh, aspect of what you do. Yep. And telomeres, Dr. Elizabeth Blackburn, yep. correct? She won the Nobel Prize for her work on that with Alyssa Apple yep. from UCSF. Yep. And those and, are our collaborators on that study. Oh, you were? Yeah. Oh, I did not remember that. Yeah, Sorry. I don't think I said that. I guess that. you can't remember everything. Yeah. But anyway, so telomeres. So explain for those people who don't know what telomeres are. Yeah. And how that, you know, meditation affects telomere length and then tie it into your games. Yeah, so telomeres are used as like a cellular marker of aging. They're the caps on the ends of, of the genes that allow, that sort of protect it. And telomere lengthening is a sign of healthy aging. And a lot of the work that Alyssa Eppel and, and others at UCSF have been doing are showing that stress reduction could actually aid that. We just recently found this is unpublished data that our Metatrain game, in addition to showing physiologically improved stress reactivity in seniors, also has telomere lengthening effects, which is pretty amazing. And amazing. Sort of mind-blowing. And we're, we're writing that paper up now. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. You've been busy during COVID. Yeah, well, I have a lot of time. <laughs> well, I believe that is all the time we have. So um, our, our great thanks to Dr. Adam Ghazali for your comments here today, as, as well as to those listening to this uh, recording and virtually. This program and more like it will be soon posted on the club's website. Website is uh, www.commonwealthclub.org. And now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California commemorating its 118th year of enlightened discussion is adjourned. Thank you, Adam Gervalli. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.